0: I am JJ Johnson, host of the Gospel and More program, Sundays from 6 to 8 a.m. We are collecting yarn to make wool caps for the homeless community. Drop off yarn and caps at KBOO 20 Southeast 8th, Monday through Fridays, 9 to 5. We are also looking for knitters. For more information, contact KBOO Gospel and More at gmail.com or go to KBOO dot fm slash gospel and more the yarn and cap drive will end january the 31st
1: this is kboo portland good evening welcome to kboo's poetry and everything i'm judith arcana your host KBOO Community Radio is in Portland, Oregon, USA and you, you could be anywhere on this planet Berlin, Yellowknife, Shanghai, Delhi, Sao Paulo Leeds, Soweto, Reykjavik, Listening Each month we have guests who are poets poets from nearby and far away and every now and then folks who are not poets All of us reading and talking about poetry and everything. We generally open with the host, me, reading a bit of my own work and then the guest and I read work by other poets. This evening I'm going to read a poem that I'm dedicating to two women who actually no longer live here but who once did and when they did they created the riot crones with three r's like the riot girls but much older and they are bt shaw and Jodie stringham so this is for you bt and jody it's called the old woman joins the riot crones when people say you must be able to laugh at yourself they really mean you should laugh at what they think you are what they want to call you If they think old women are ugly and foolish, you must laugh at that. You are to smile in recognition of their accurate observation. If you don't, won't do what they want, be what they want, you have to be ready to fight. Fight to be real. You'll need friends to laugh with when something is funny. Join up. We have t-shirts. Okay, that's the Judith piece for tonight, folks. And now I would like to introduce you to this evening's guest. This evening's guest is David Rutiser, a grandchild of Jewish immigrants who grew up in Illinois and Massachusetts. Now he's in Portland. <laughs> he has an MFA in creative writing, and his poems appear in Drash, Harper Pallet, Jewish Currents, and North Coast Squid. He's the founder of December 1st Writers. They give readings on World AIDS Day. David sings and plays keyboard and ukulele. He's performed in memory care communities and recorded a children's album, The Kid In Me. David has taught Israeli and international folk dancing to all ages, abilities, and backgrounds. That's everybody, I guess. Um, He teaches and tutors English and volunteers for both the Cascade Festival of African Films and the Oregon Holocaust Memorial. His website, which you can click up when you're done listening to this, is www.creativedavid.com. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, a pleasure. It's a pleasure even in advance. Okay, so David and I are going to now read poems by other poets, not David Rutizer (laughs) and Judith Arcana. So what have you got, David? What would you bring?
2: Okay, I brought a couple of poems by someone else. Uh, I'll start with this one. This is by Liesl Miller, and it's called When I Am Asked. When I am asked how I began writing poems, I talk about the indifference of nature. It was soon after my mother died, a brilliant June day, everything blooming. I sat on a gray stone bench in a lovingly planted garden, but the day lilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers mm. and the roses curved inward. Nothing was black or broken, and not a leaf fell, and the sun blared endless commercials for summer holidays. I sat on a gray stone bench, ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience, and placed my grief in the mouth of language, the only thing that would grieve with me.
1: And you said you had another?
2: And this one's by Stephen Dunn, and it's called uh, Choosing to Think of It. Choosing to Think of It. Today, 10,000 people will die, and their small replacements will bring joy, and this will make sense to someone removed from any sense of loss. I, too, will die a little and carry on doing some paperwork driving myself home. The sky is simply overcast, nothing is any less than it was yesterday or the day before. In short, there's no reason, or every reason, why I'm choosing to think of this now. The short-lived holiness true lovers know, making them unaccountable, except to spirit and themselves suddenly i want to be that insufferable and selfish that sharpened and tuned i'm going to think of what it means to be an animal crossing a highway to be a human without a useful prayer setting off on one of those journeys we humans take i don't expect anything to change i just want to be filled up a little more with what exists Tipped toward the laughter which understands I'm nothing, and all there is by evening, the promised storm will arrive. a few in small boats will be taken by surprise. There will be survivors, and even they will die.
1: Ah, done he's good he's good. thank you. all right. I brought um a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called The Use of Fiction. A boy claims he saw you on a bicycle last week, touring his neighborhood. West Cypress Street, he shouts, as if your being there and his seeing you were some sort of benediction. To be alive, "'to be standing outside on a tender February evening. "'It was a blue bicycle, ma'am. "'Your braid was flying. "'I said hello, and you laughed, remember?' "'You almost tell him your bicycle seat is thick with dust. "'The tires have been flat for months. "'But his face, that radiant flower, says you are his friend. "'He has told his mother your name.' Maybe this is a clear marble he will hide in his sock drawer for months. So who now, in a universe of figures, would deny West Cypress Street throwing up clouds into this literal sky? Yes, amigo, hand on shoulder, it was I. Uh such a wonderful attitude. I'd like to have that attitude more often. (laughs) Um, Maybe that's why I chose that poem, (laughs) is to prompt it. So um, folks, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to KBOO, Portland Community Radio, Portland, Oregon. And if you've just tuned in, you missed a few poems, but you're right on time to hear David Rutizer's reading, which he is about to begin for us. So David, please read to us.
2: Thank you. So this first one, that I'm going to share with you of my own is called "Laundry with Mama." So now she sees it. the lightened splotch in a lopsided horseshoe bleached against her baby blue pants leg hanging to dry. And what does she say? That's what happens to those light colors. For years she's demand she demanded my proof unable to discern the pale streaks on my once-favorite light-gray trousers. Or she'd tell me the fabric itself must have been weakening, or that the dye was clumping or growing old. So now you believe me, I tell her, and she says she's always believed me, and I tell her that's not how she's acting, (laughs) and then that's that. Even today, when others won't look in my eyes, or say, I'm sorry, or, my mistake, or, I don't know. It's her voice I hear, switching the subject, even blaming the detergent manufacturer. They must have changed their formula. (laughs) This one's called Waiting. And uh, Judith alluded to my uh, tutoring English. I tutor at Portland Community College, so uh, a bit of that is, well, that was the leaping off place for this poem. Waiting. The PCC parking lot, though enlarged, is still inadequate for the number of people, and I'm blocked by the line of cars. I spend the elongated minutes noticing plants in their sunken beds, the angles of brick, a woman's dark hair contoured by afternoon light, a stray dried leaf, a student walking past. When my mother and I were trapped in the condo for a week during the big ice storm, I imagined two spiders and how when one spider finds the other's corner, one will end up eaten by the other, with only its spindly legs left behind, one leg still pulsing with the same energy it had used in life. And how everything that week felt swollen and claustrophobic. My mom's dresser of drawers seemed to be watching me, and the brown splotches expanded on the skins of the bananas in the basket on the kitchen counter and my grandparents old clock that my mom could never get rid of still didn't work, sitting on my grandparents old piano that still no longer played, below a painting of old European houses along a river with some old cathedral looming in the background. The place seemed to sink into itself. On the fourth day I couldn't stand it anymore and I yelled at my mother. Now She isn't here at all. She's just gone and the radio blares another mass shooting. And now I can finally pull out of my parking place and I obsess again about my always low bank account, again a prisoner to life's arithmetic, all the way to the pizza joint where I settle for the one-trip salad bar and the balloon man twists happiness into the two brothers who were fighting over the video games when I came in and the 1980s music takes me back to high school and being a passenger of my parents when a song was all it took to be free.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, this next poem, I, after I wrote it, I, I rewrote it uh, with uh, sort of a, a prompt to myself, an assignment um, to s- rewrite it n- not necessarily from the perspective of, but within the feelings of, or within the perspective of the other person in the poem. Not me, but the other person. And I've renamed her, too. This is called, uh, oh, and this is this event is coming up. It's a uh, takes place on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so only a month away now. It's called Tabitha's Petty, MLK Jr. Day Celebration, Portland, Oregon. She turns her walker to face the stage and sits down. I'd smiled and told her I'd be back, but that seems like ancient history now, and she can't concentrate anymore not on the gospel choir in their regal purples, certainly not on the speeches, nor even on the dancing children in their dashikis and headdresses, tossing their hair side to side, pushing back their shoulders to the crowd's shouts. It's not as though I'm too young to understand. So I'd invited her to sit with me and my parents and my friend Why should she ingratiate herself to strangers? She'd even cried when I first told her I have no real home, though her son-in-law bans her from seeing her own grandchildren. She'd arranged the disabled lift, something harder than I seemed to be able to give her credit for, and it took them two hours to go the ten miles, dropping someone else off, picking another up, she'd done all she could. Now here I was with clearly some kind of boyfriend at a party to which she suddenly felt uninvited. After lift every voice and sing, she rolls toward me, wordless. In the car, she stares straight ahead. Almost to the Oregon City exit, she wipes away her tears. David... Your life is a film in which I am obviously an extra. Mm.
1: You said you rewrote it.
2: I rewrote it, yeah.
1: So what was the, um, just give me one sentence here because you're in the middle of your reading, but since you said that, I can't help but ask. What was the spike in your mind that made you say, oh, I have to change this?
2: Well, I I just wanted to, and I felt like the poem needed something more, and also I'm, as I as I've mentioned, I'm an only child, and I'm um, I'm very self-conscious about writing too much from my own perspective.
1: Ah, so you wanted what you said so when you I were introducing a, it, right? And that was not in the first version.
2: I, no, no, I put it all in her voice, and I changed her name.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Probably a good
2: idea. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Although although she she at least at the time she was living in Oregon City. Uh So that part's true. Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) But so are a lot of other people.
2: Yeah. Continue.
1: Continue, please. Read read at us.
2: Okay. So this next one is called Alpha Male. He walks into you as you ride your bicycle and yells at you to watch where you're going. When he bangs the restroom door into you, he blames you for changing into your work clothes in the wrong place. Why can't you get dressed over there? While his wife is talking to someone else, he follows you out to his driveway to ask you who in the hell you think you are to swear in his living room. Even though the meeting was of a gun violence prevention group and you were only repeating what a fellow student had said who threatened you, and you were only asking for help. He ropes you in and lays a guilt trip on you for not producing his concerts. You can do this shit, even though you'd met him over coffee to discuss something else. As MC, he mispronounces names with an authoritarian voice and never writes a thank you list. When you stand aside for a moment, While his wife tries to dig their sedan out of the ice with the shovel, you've let her borrow from your own car, he barks. Don't make her do it. He asks, is there anything I can do for you now? Without apologizing for bumping into your table and spilling your hot tea water all over you and then trying to just keep walking as if he hadn't even noticed. But he's so tall that you guess he guesses that no one is supposed to confront him. You need to order something now. This is a restaurant. The waiter hisses at the poetry reading, to your friend who just got there and just joined you at your table. He's always the first to blare his horn, even at the stop sign when a car on the cross street has approached the intersection first, and he swears and screams so long that you pull aside and let him get in front of you in his rusty old jeep with gas fumes so strong you almost can't breathe standing behind you at the gelato place he yells piss off turn around and make a choice when you simply asked him to stop yelling in your ear on his cell phone while his girlfriend stands there the girlfriends or wives always just stand there Don't even think about his spare bedroom for rent. You can hear him talking in the next room to the office girls while you fill out the job application. Probably some upwardly mobile college student, he says. And when you make sure to laugh when telling him you heard him, he says, fine, if you don't like it, leave. The office girls just sit there. Even his friends don't get his mangled sign language he uses to make fun of you during the barista training. He points you out to all his buddies hanging in the grocery parking lot and they all glare at you as you sit in your car wolfing lunch and you know but you're the only one besides them who knows that you weren't staring even anywhere near him. He talks over you and louder always getting louder like my father has always done to me and he stays and never leaves like the last crocodile in drought on the National Geographic special to prove his ownership his dominance even when the mud cakes his leathered flesh and the unyielding heat dries his mammoth skeleton and the hollow sockets that once held his eyes. Okay, I have a couple more poems. Yes,
1: we have a we have a couple more minutes. What luck? Perfect. Yes.
2: Thank you. This one's called Creature of Habit. My friend Diana tells me her cancer has metastasized. I've already borrowed $1,300 from my dad this summer to have the car repaired. My mind moves back yet again to the mathematics, calculating if I'll make it through the summer. My friend from Eugene stays in the same hotel room each year for Pride Weekend in Portland, even after they change owners and names. Is it really easier to stay here indefinitely, in my mother's old bedroom, her ghosts staring me down every morning, her mother's old dressers, covered with my mom's painted-on flowers, my grandparents' old piano she never let go of, dysfunctional since the Glen Ellen flood when I was a child, framed photos of the pets she chose imagining purging the dusty boxes of the cassettes I haven't listened to in years. One morning last winter I eye my father's winter coat on its coat tree peg and relent. (laughs) Of course it fits me. I wear it all winter long. who will tell him and why would he even care in a country he goes to every year where there's no winter still it feels a bit sneaky each night from a hole somewhere it releases a little feathery white down unto my sweater's navy blue sleeves Right,
1: we've got is it middle or long or short? Oh, it's
2: short. One more. Close short with that one. one. Okay. Close with that one. Okay. This is short. Okay. It's called Driving Past the Hospital Where My Mother Died. I almost forgot. But surely, somewhere behind that parking garage, in the room where she lay gasping for a few days one fall, many others by now, have occupied the same bed, stripped countless times of the sheets that each has died in. Hmm. And we writers, isn't it our gamble that some day, long after us, someone will pull us off a shelf and wrap themselves in the sheets of our words? here in the great hospital room of the living.
1: All right. Thank you. I'm glad we kept that one in for the closer. That's a good closer. Thank you so much. All right. Now we go into the talking back and forth among ourselves conversation part of the show. Um, And some of the questions I ask as often as I possibly can, others I kind of make up and Punt as we go. So, um, but w- I like to begin with the poet's childhood. Um, so we'll start with this one. Did you read um, or listen to poetry when you were growing up? Was that uh, something that was a presence in your life?
2: Well, my f- I remember my father encouraging me to write. Ah. So I started writing poems when I was a kid, and I remember putting together a, a some poems that my mom put in together into a book uh-huh so you know it was just um you know copied pages right that had been sure. folded over and stapled uh-huh but yeah I do remember that uh-huh. yeah. and had
1: you heard other people or known other people who wrote poems or read poems mm. in your books when you were little oh
2: uh, I I do remember when we were in Massachusetts, my father took me to, there was this big celebration for Jack Kerouac because he was from Lowell, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and we were living in Chelmsford, Mm -hmm. the next town over. Uh And there was this big, huge celebration of his, I don't know if I remember if it was an anniversary of his birthday or something like that. But Lawrence Ferlinghetti was there, Allen Ginsberg, Michael McClure, and there were hundreds of people. Yeah, and actually, what I I mean, I remember sitting there listening to these different poets. At the time, I didn't realize what a big deal it was. How I guess. old were you? Mm, probably thirteen. Uh huh.
1: Uh huh. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Very experience. Yeah, to that have was an amazing experience at the age of thirteen. Yeah, looking back, yeah, I
2: remember actually, my father and I were <laughs> out in the foyer and we were just watching all the people milling around and uh-huh. just there were there were so many different kinds of people there were old blue-haired ladies and teenagers uh-huh. and blue-haired teenagers and yeah i always just i just remember watching the people with him
1: uh-huh. and um clearly your father was encouraging you did he write poems or prose for that matter did anyone else in the family write Not that I know of. Cousins, grandparents?
2: I have a cousin who's a writer. Uh, My mom's sister's daughter. Uh Is she older than you? Yes, she's nine years older than I am. Her Uh name is Terry.
1: And did you know that Terry was writing before you? Ah, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, she was the
2: one I always looked up to in the uh family. Yeah,
1: that's the kind of thing I'm interested in knowing. Was there somebody or was there nobody? And did you have to be the trailblazer and blah, blah, blah? Yeah,
2: yeah. I I always thought she was really cool and very independent. And creative. Uh, all right. Yeah, Excellent to have
1: her as an older cousin.
2: Yeah. I, 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 I really wasn't in contact with her much, though, because I was in Chicago and she was in Los Angeles. Uh, but I know that she had a column in the Los Angeles Times oh, for many years. Yes. And then she worked for Hallmark Cards for a while. She wrote for magazines. And eventually she wrote a book about raising her to... Um, she adopted... She and her husband went to Russia and adopted uh, two children with developmental disabilities from an orphanage. Wow. And she's been an amazing mother and advocate for parents of special needs kids, and she has a blog and everything. Uh Yeah. So she's an
1: inspirational older cousin on many fronts. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
2: she really is.
1: Okay, Um, All right, this is sort of related, I think. So I'm putting this question in here. What would you say you get, what happens for you Um, what do you get from writing poetry? What's it doing for you to be a poet? I remember years ago, first meeting you at poetry readings, you are absolutely Mr. I'm at the poetry reading guy, you know, and of course, hearing you read your own stuff. So clearly there's, Something that's major league about poetry for you. can you say, as they say, can you say a few words or more than a few about what that's what's happening well, there?
2: I love communicating with a blank page because it doesn't talk back. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it doesn't interrupt me. Mm-hmm. and i it's like when I'm writing, I, it's like, okay, what do I really have to say to the world today?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That's the best way I can describe it. Um, I mean later I can go back and revise it But when I'm writing I don't know I, I'm just writing I'm just thinking about What what I need to put on the page To go out to the world And I necessi- am I don't think I'm necessarily Picturing any particular person um, Even though I, I, I mean I suppose someone is listening uh-huh. You know It's
1: like right now, people are listening yeah, to us. Of course. We don't even know who they are and it'll be online. So
2: that's how it always is though. Right. You, you never know who never. who is gonna be affected in what way. Who's gonna who's pick up there. what you've
1: written yeah. and take it home with them? Yeah. Or stand at the bus stop reading it or yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what you're getting, what you know, in terms of my, my original question, what you get is that sense that you're putting what you have chosen in that moment to. You're getting the opportunity to put that out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a fair? I,
2: I think so. And I think something. It's sometimes it's something I've learned. Uh-huh. You're know, like, what did I learn from this difficult, awful experience I went through? Uh-huh. Um, but other times it's just an observation.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You yeah. know, I, I suppose I shouldn't say just, but you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, I understand what you mean. I mean. I, I, I can understand why anyone, including me, would say that an observation has a lower rank than a major league life lesson. Right. Yeah. But sometimes observations that we make as writers can turn into the major league, et cetera, et cetera, for a listener or a reader. I know that has certainly happened to me with other people's writing. Um, I think, (laughs) you know, just suddenly it comes into you. Bam, like that. Whatever you've read yeah
2: right right
1: okay um do you um, this is kind of a hokey one is uh, we were some of us were talking out uh, outside the studio earlier before you came about um, the kinds of questions that people ask writers um, and this is alas one of those classics but I I'm very interested do you have a particular ritual or habit or Practice or situate. Like, do you have to have a particular pen, or do you have to have your keyboard on your knees, or you know, is there anything like that going on for you, David?
2: That's well, that's interesting. I like this pen for some reason. (laughs) I've been using this. It's right here in the studio, folks. Yeah. Um. I like I like writing. I like writing on paper. Uh I don't usually compose on the the computer. I I do revise on it, however, Mm -hmm. and. Um, I carry my backpack with me everywhere I go, and I carry something to write with and something to write on. Mm
1: -hmm. At all times. Yeah. Yes, I I do. I'm like that, too. I do. Yeah, absolutely. And in my apartment, there are um, ballpoint pens and scraps of paper, because just in case, I should have one of those startling, classic, almost comic moments. Oh, idea! I need to be able to write it down. Yeah, I have a mm-hmm. I have a
2: little pocket-sized book too that I can write in if I really don't want to carry my backpack with me somewhere.
1: Yeah, God forbid the world should miss on this idea I had between the kitchen and the living room. Yes, but that's what I do. Okay, now a much more serious thing: Are there subjects that you particularly want to write about?
2: Oh gosh, well I've one thing I've know I've noticed I've written a lot about my mother.
1: Yes, even in the ones you chose for us tonight. Even
2: the ones tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've started more lately writing about my father. Um, but my mother would always really just beam. Uh-huh. You know, when she saw that, you know, once again, she'd shown up in one of my poems. Uh-huh.
1: And then, too, fairly recently she died. And so yeah, you have... Yeah, two years ago. Yeah, you have that which is um for almost all of us an earth shaker when the mother dies you know because that's where we came from um yeah. so yeah okay um are there subjects you particularly do not want to write about that perhaps other people might expect you to do or poets are supposed to write about this or you know sunsets or i don't know what. well oh, that's
2: <laughs> yeah i i guess nature i think nature is appearing in my poems.
1: Oh, for sure, I heard some. <laughs> no, thank
2: you, thank you. But what I, I mean, I, it would always be that whenever I would see, you know, like there would be a, a, a call for submissions or a contest announcement, you know, that they were they were accepting poems about n- uh, you know nature. I would always think, oh, but I'm not a nature poet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I suppose there is a difference between quote a nature poet, which of course the phrase we all use, and someone who one day decides to write about a particular flower or a particular sunset or suddenly sees a tree that she's seen every day for 10 years and it's, oh, whoa, what about that tree? You know, and then something happens in our heads and the next thing you know, we're using it in the work.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wrote, I did write a poem about my It was really about my father and my relationship with my father when we were walking through the forest preserves, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know, because you're from Chicago too, right? I lived most of my life in Chicago before
1: I came to the Pacific Northwest.
2: Right. But I always have to explain to people out here what forest preserves are, (laughs) because we don't use that term out here. No. But, you know, these these areas that were preserved from, uh, you know, from development. Saved. Saved from development and my father and I, you know, this poem was about my father taking me through one of those forest preserves mm-hmm. and we wound up you know on the other side coming out into the city again but I didn't recognize where we, ca- where we came out. Mm-hmm. But you know it was really about my relationship with my father uh-huh. and I was comparing, I guess I was also comparing, you know, Oregon you know because there aren't any fireflies and I mentioned fireflies um, and then I mentioned how my father always called them lightning bugs.
1: Yes, like I would have, when I was a child, we called them lightning bugs. Yeah. I learned fireflies later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. Okay. Um, are there subjects that you think of for yourself, not in the world generally? as more difficult than others? Like, oh, this is really hard for me to write about X, but I want to on this occasion, something like that. Do you have that experience ever? Some do, some don't.
2: I've written, sometimes I've written things. um, Well, for instance, um, I wrote a piece about being in the, my friend Ellen, who, spends most of her time in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. She can walk, but just barely. It's easier for her to be in a wheelchair. And we were, we must have been on our way to a show or something, we'd stopped at a grocery store downtown. And, um, you know, she was wheeling around in her wheelchair and this young woman from behind muttered something really disparaging about her. Really? And as she went down, I was just so angry that in that moment uh, you know, I as you know I, I, I was just livid, and I have never really been able to finish that piece in a way that's satisfying for mm-hmm. me.
1: Okay. So that's still on the list.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. so it's waiting for you. Yeah, so at times there are things like, I think in that case I, I was just I want this to be more than just an angry poem about how mm-hmm. terrible that person was
1: mm-hmm. Sure you want more from it which means you want more from yourself as the writer so you'll have to get more okay yeah are there other arts that you think are um what I call like poetry that you have any relationship to
2: Mm, nothing's been like poetry for me Uh, and I I sing and play keyboard and ukulele as you earlier and I love folk dancing as you also mentioned yeah um but each of those is different for me. Uh-huh. Um, I don't find... I, I mean, I, I guess the best way I can I can explain it is to, to talk about when I was in acting school, and I was in this piece that was written by someone else, and I was trying so hard to embody this character that was, you know, an actual real-life character. Uh-huh. And uh, you know something that this person might have said, and I just—I was having a hard time. Everyone was saying I was doing fine, but, <laughs> but you didn't for think me. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't find I'm able to put myself into other things, in terms of my own experience and uh-huh. my own sort of insights,
1: uh-huh. in the way that you can with no, poetry. Right. Put your whole self in, as yeah, the little no. rhyme says. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you ever do um, research for your poems? I know that a lot of what you've been talking about is stuff that comes from the emotional base, from relationships. Research is a whole nother thing, usually. What do you think?
2: Not, I don't do a lot of research, I- except I do sometimes research things that are already in something I'm writing. Like I remember writing about... Uh, Termites that had infested one of the apartments I lived in. Uh-huh. And at the time, I didn't realize they were termites because uh-huh. I, I, as far as I remembered, I hadn't seen them. And so I started writing about how, you know, I expected them to be like this, but instead they were like this. And at a certain point, I needed something to describe how they moved, uh-huh. how they were moving across the floor. And I wound up looking up because I had taken ballet briefly when I was in, in high school. I mean, that, and that could be its whole, whole, a, a whole poem un, unto itself.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I had this horrible ballet teacher who lived in the next town over, and she taught out of her home. But I remember that she did teach this move called pas de bourrée, but I thought, well, that's not
0: quite
2: it. So I did some research, and I found that there was this other dance, other ballet move called pas de, pas de Chaval. I'm not sure if I'm saying that quite right, uh, but it winds it, it something clar- about a horse. Yeah, it's a horse uh-huh. step, in which the 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 ho- the, 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 the ballet the the ballet dancer actually paw, you know. Ste- uh, makes this motion with Run his or her foot like, right. a, like, like the a pawing guys. of a horse. And you're saying which that is this is actually termites? Yeah, it actually oh, was wow. closer to what the termites were doing.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I read something recently, and I think maybe another poet was even talking about this, about the relationship between... Yeah, one of the other poets who's been on the show, I think it was Michael Spring, about the relationship between termites and cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And that's an, that was another case where... Research was absolutely necessary, and suddenly termites are a hot thing among poets. Who knew? Uh, Okay, or at least on this show, I I seem to be uh, discovering it with you guys. Okay. Um, All right. Another kind of question: Um, Would you say that your work as a poet has changed over the years? And if you do think so, how has it changed?
2: Hmm. Well, one thing I am finding myself doing lately is revising more. I put stuff on the computer. I type it up and then maybe a week will go by or maybe a month or maybe a few months (laughs) and then I'll look and I'll like, Oh, I forgot I even wrote this. Uh And I'll go back and I'll try different things. I'll try different line breaks. Or I'll just put it all together as one big clump, you know, Mm -hmm. as more of a prose piece. Mm -hmm. Just to see what'll happen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Um, Do you think of yourself as being uh, part of a poetry community locally or nationally or globally? And also, if yes, if no, we can move on. But if yes, what does that mean to you to be part of a poetry community?
2: Hmm. Well, I do go to a lot of readings. I ch- I try to go whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I I mean I, I I like supporting the local scene. I I don't really feel that connected to the national scene. Kay. I must I must say. Okay. Um. You know, I—I I mean, I've had the—I've op- had some wonderful opportunities. Though I went to L.A. in 2013, I got to be a Lambda Literary Fellow.
1: Wonderful. Uh,
2: you know, LGBTQ writers and poets, and yeah. I got to study with David Groff, which was really amazing. I'll say. Um, so, I mean, I know people are out there, but I don't—I know. I still feel kind of isolated, I must say,
1: from that larger scene. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, mm, I But do. not on the local s- scene, clearly.
2: No, no.
1: No, you know you're part of it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, a little shift on that. What would you say is the relationship between your work as a poet and the other work you do in your life? We've both now mentioned some of the other work, uh, particularly kinds of teaching, different subjects and so on, yeah. that you do in your life. What, <coughs> excuse me, what's, how do they either ignore each other or play together these different things?
2: Well, I have wound up writing about um, singing. Ah. I didn't read any of those tonight, but you did mention that I, I sang for many years. At yes. Alt- uh Memory care communities, of yeah. course, Yeah, what, what they're called now. I know. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, so I have written some poems about about the, those those uh, wound up being published in um Jewish currents uh-huh. and in their calendar uh-huh. because they were doing a calendar about music, the theme was you know going to be about music. And all the artwork was going to be about music, too. And I thought, well, I'll send my poems about you know, singing in the Mm-hmm. Assisted living and memory care communities. Uh-huh. And they wrote me back right away, oh, David, these are perfect. I'll take this one and this one. Uh-huh. So, Excellent. you know, the singing has informed, and I have started to write a bit about folk dancing as uh-huh. well.
1: So these other things then become um, subject matter or grist for the mill or other cliches. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you think that those things affect the poetry as well? Not just as um, fodder. But that the fact that you dance and you sing, what effect does that have on making art with words?
2: Well, I mean, thinking again about the termite poem, maybe I wouldn't have thought about a dance move at all. Uh-huh. Maybe I would have thought the termites are—I don't know—doing something else. Uh uh-huh. You know.
1: Okay. So you have that. It's like
2: I a. Mean, I mean, I don't know because I'm not someone else. I'm me. For sure. Uh, it does. I mean. I guess one could say since I am a dancer I I mean it's n- not a coincidence that I thought of uh-huh. oh you know what are they doing oh you know and then I thought of you know some kind of dance move
1: yeah 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 I mean, absolutely I mean it's certainly I yeah. mean you to say that and I think well yeah sure of course
2: yeah okay. I mean I, someone else maybe someone in the trades would think about yeah. The, Tools you know their and how they right
1: exactly yeah how you um make something with a hammer or yeah, you know yeah. and these footsteps of the little termite whatever yeah, i'm just may, may making be. that up but yeah. yes yes whatever um now i know that you um you have an mfa yeah and did you then um take classes that were designed to teach people to write
2: poetry is that what you were doing well we had a pedagogy element to it mm-hmm. certainly and then but then but then after i graduated oh i remember my mother got frustrated with me again she <laughs> said david you've got this mfa you're not doing you're not doing anything and that so then i wound up uh, getting a you know Thinking about teaching English as a second language and getting my TESL certificate. Uh-huh. So then I, I, I did that. But Practical I, business. Yeah, but I did actually this fall. I taught, I taught through, um, I taught in an after-school class through the Sun Schools. I taught um, story writing uh-huh. to a group of children. And that was really delightful. I'm sure. Oh, my
1: God. They haven't been ruined yet, and they say and write the most amazing things. Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. Okay. That was actually going to—I was going to say, have you taught writing either poetry or prose, and here you just, you know— tell us. Okay, here's um, here's a more political, or more overtly political question. Um, do you believe that your class, color, ethnicity, national origin, sexual identity, gender, age, physical ability, etc., 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 any of those determine or influence what you write?
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about... I didn't share this poem tonight, but I have a poem... About that, w- that was that was triggered by women asking me why I didn't have a boyfriend.
1: Women asking you yes. why you didn't have a boyfriend. Yes. Uh-huh.
2: Yes. Uh huh. And it's very, I mean, it's very interesting to me um, that it's never it's for me it's never been straight men who uh-huh. ask me this. Uh huh. And. Relatively oh, relatively that. rarely yeah. other gay men.
1: Uh-huh. uh-huh. That
2: that yeah. connotes something else. Yes. Right. It's the
1: females who want <laughs> to know.
2: Right, right. I think
1: it's because we're trained to pay terrific amount of attention to that. Did you get one? Did you get one? Did you get one?
2: Right. Yeah. yeah women
1: have to have one, you know.
2: Yeah. There's part of that yeah. that's part of it, I think. And another part I I think is also that um straight women will feel safe with Gay men, because they know it's not going to go anywhere Uh (laughs) in in, in terms of sex, sexual. I know exactly what you mean. Sexual, right? Yeah, you know, element. So they'll just sort of divulge things about themselves. Sometimes people who don't know me very well. Um, So I wound up. So finally, after many times of this happening, I wrote a whole poem that was sort Uh of instigated by that. So
1: this was a very specific. Theme or topic because of this life experience you were having. Yeah. Do you also think, or have you ever considered, the possibility that writing the way you do, wh- however you define that, and I'm not even asking you to define it, is caused in some way by your being a white man? A white gay man, a white gay man who came from the Great Lakes and now lives in the Pacific, you know, I'm just adding all these on, but this is the kind of thing that interests me, which is why I have this question in here.
2: Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know, but I do I I mean, I I do think that to this day, I speak like a Midwesterner <laughs> I don't feel like I speak like, like an Oregonian speaks I still hear the Long, flat, short O's, uh-huh. and the As, uh-huh. um, and people. I think people out here they try to comfort me by saying, "Oh no, you're you're like you're 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 an Oregonian now. I I don't have to be an Oregonian.
1: Well, you live here, and that's yeah, yeah. But, but, but I
2: don't feel in any way that I will ever. I mean, to have grown up here is a whole different experience. I'll say, and so. And, to and have grown I'm up o- anywhere? I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, wherever we come from.
2: But I would say, yeah, I do think, on some level, surely it must be informing the way I write.
1: Yeah. Well, some think so, some don't. I mean, some of the poets I've asked that say absolutely not. They don't. They don't think like that. Others, um, like me, I think. It's clearly the case. You know, I was born in the middle of World War II. I'm a woman. I'm white. I'm a Jew. Mm -hmm. I have, I'm a mother. These things are what make me who I actually am. Right. So, of course, if I want to, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, when I look at my work, I say, oh, this came from. Having this as right. part of who I am, which well, is why I like this question.
2: Yeah, and well, and one of the things I'm noticing for for myself is that I these Yiddish words from time to time poke their way into my writing. And I wasn't raised very religiously, but the, mm-hmm. you know, my grandparents spoke Yiddish. Mm-hmm. You know, so I relate to those, and yet I relate to them probably in a less visceral way than my mother did. Oh, of course, who was the generation. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. But it's in there, as you say. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. Oh, in yeah, there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Now we have just a minute or two left, and I like to know from the folks who are on the show, what are you working on now?
2: Oh gosh, well, I'm still I'm still writing. Um, right now, I'm working on yet again revising my manuscript because because I don't have a book out. Uh-huh. So, which I would really love to have. Of
1: course, yes.
2: Yeah. So that's one really big big project uh-huh. that I And you that just I work have.
1: on it regularly. It's like, that's part of the deal.
2: Every once in a while, I beg someone I I admire. like I, there, a, a poet just moved to town recently who I really admire and she very graciously said that she would look at my manuscript. So every once in a while, I I mention that. Mm-hmm. What else am I working on? Um, I, I would like to start singing some more again. Ah. Um, I would like to... Keep folk dancing, do do more teaching and tutoring. Uh-huh. I I love tutoring. However, I'm only doing it part time, so which means that I'm I'm always looking for a little more. You yeah, know? you're
1: not immersed in it.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I, I mean, I am when I'm there. Well, uh, during the time uh, I'm there. Right,
1: of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, as a as a life.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, in less than a minute, are you reading anything really terrific right now, poetry or whatever?
2: Oh, let's see. The last thing I read, actually I've been reading more um, biographies and autobiographies lately. Mm -hmm. And I read a very long book um, about Alan Locke um, called The New Negro, The Life of Alan Locke Mm -hmm. by Jeffrey Stewart. And it was almost 800 pages, uh, 900 pages long.
1: People do that now. Yeah.
2: yeah so, yeah, that was... An we have
1: to want it, and we do sometimes. So yeah. I got to
2: learn more about the, you know, African-American literary community back then. Absolutely, and, yeah. And, I mean, among other things. And
1: clearly, I mean, I'm assuming it's well-written enough to pull you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, Okay. Well, thanks for that information and thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. And talking with me and everyone out there who's listening, you're talking with them as well. So, folks, next month's Poetry and Everything will be our annual We're Gonna Read Some Poems by William Stafford show in addition to the visiting poet herself. And that show will first air on January 28th at 10 p.m. And after that just like this show. It'll be available on the net anytime, all the time. So thanks for listening, folks. And remember, support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. Good night.
0: Kabu Community Radio is requesting proposals for a grant writer to provide ongoing grant writing services and application support. This is a one-year contract position for 200 hours compensated at $25 an hour. Proposals must be submitted electronically to Delphine Crescenzo, station manager at del, that's D-E-L, at CABU.FM. Proposals are due Friday, January 4th at 5 p.m. Responsibilities, background information, the scope of work, and proposal requirements can be found at kebufm slash grantwriter2018. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Kbu is excited to be part of the 2018 Willamette Week Give Guide. This year, Willamette Week and Kebu are challenging our community to give with their dollars and take action by showing up in real life, yeah. KBU has been showing up for over 50 years. Give to KBU today, and you yeah. get full access to the Chinook Book app, plus freebies from Laughing Planet, Gluten Free Gem, We Press, and Nosa Familia Coffee. You can contribute right now at kboo.fm/give or call 503-231-8032. Support KBOO, where music makes Uh. the movement.
0: (laughs) Uh. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Stay tuned for the Holy Crowley Hour. No sound of angels in the trees. Christmas is far away. Listen, what's this? But then a voice starts whipping round the vision couple. Good evening, and welcome to this special Christmas Eve edition of the Holy Crowley Hour. For those of you new to the show, you might be asking yourself, what's Christmas Eve? Easy, it's the night before Christmas. You might also be asking yourself, what's the Holy Crowley Hour? Well, the answer to that question is a bit more involved. Sometime several years ago, a KBOO talk show caller made an accusation. She claimed that there were several late-night DJs at the station who belonged